If you're new with us, we, we, we've been going for the last year and a half uh, together through uh, the Gospel of John. We've been, we've been walking just section by section together through the Gospel of John. And if you weren't with us uh, from the very beginning, let me explain to you why we decided to spend so much of our life uh, together doing that. Uh, why we thought that was worthy of our time. Um, we, the Gospel of John was written by, you guessed it, John, right? And John was uh, one of Jesus' uh, closest friends and disciples as Jesus uh, walked this earth. And so, you know, John was in, in, in his inner circle. He's one of his most intimate friends. And so we believe that John provides for us perhaps the clearest and most comprehensive answer to the question of who is this Jesus and what did he accomplish? And, and I don't think it would be any stretch for me to say, any exaggeration for me to say that that question right there is the most important question that, that you can ask. The most important question in the history of the world is who is this Jesus and what is it that he accomplished? Because here's the deal. Everybody's got to do something with Jesus, You've got to do something with Jesus, and here's why. If you were to, if you were to uh, uh, gather in a room, a, 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 a room full of educated, learned people, not this room, obviously, but if you were to, uh, <laughs> if you were <laughs> a different room, different people, um, if you were to, to gather a bunch of educated, that's a great way to start an Easter message, insult, <laughs> insult the crowd. Um, <laughs> Um, if you were to, to take a room and, and fill it with educated, learned people, and you were to ask them uh, to, to make a list of the most influential people in the history of the world, I would guarantee you that almost all, if not all, would include Jesus on that list, and many of them would, make, would put Jesus at the very top of that list. And, and that's, a, that's a big claim. That's a big statement. I'll back it up with a couple of comments. Let me, let me read to you a couple of comments from some historians in the past. William Lecky was a 19th century historian, uh, not a Christian Okay, not a Christian. He's not biased uh, here, but he's he is a skeptic. Uh, but this is what he says about Jesus. He says, The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but has exerted so deep an influence, so deep an influence, that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and than all the exhortations of moralists. Okay, that's, that's, he, he's not a Christian. Let me, let me read you one other one. Philip Schaft, he's another historian. He said this. He said, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without sciences and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pins in motion and furnished themes for more ser sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. You've got to do something with Jesus. And, and listen, it, it's, we don't just study Jesus. We don't just talk about him here and celebrate him here because he was influential. There's a lot of influential people in our world. Siddhartha was influential. Muhammad was influential. Hitler was influential. We're not singing songs about him, right? There's lots of influential people in the world. But listen, if you look at that list of influential people that, that, that you can make, I guarantee there's something that sets Jesus apart. Jesus is the only person who would make that list who claimed to be God incarnate. He claimed to be God in the flesh. 
Yeah, every, other, every other person who would make that list would say something like, you know, here, here's some new teaching. Here's some new list of rules. Here, here's a new worldview. Here's a new philosophy. Here's a new way to live. If you want salvation, if you want heaven, if you want a, a new way, you know, a new life, do this, do that. Not Jesus. Jesus said, if you want life, you need me. He said, I am the life. I am the way. I, I'm not just here to give you a new, a new set of truths. I am truth, Jesus says. I am salvation. I am resurrection. And listen, here's what's so fascinating. Every other, per, other people have made those claims. Every, other people claim to be God. But every other person throughout history who has made those kind of claims, claiming to be God, claiming to be divine, claiming to be some kind of divine Messiah, has been eventually dismissed as either, either a liar or a lunatic. They're, they're dismissed as a crackpot, as delusional. So the question we have to ask then is how in the world could Jesus make claims like he did? And he made some incredible claims, didn't he? Remember we talked last night? He said that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He said that, that before Abraham existed, and Abraham existed centuries before Jesus walked the earth. Abraham, Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am. He's saying he's eternally preexistent. Right? He, he, he makes all of these in, incredible claims. And, and, and yet... It, it, how, how can somebody who makes claims like that still grow to be the most, arguably the most influential person in the history of the world? The world has absolutely changed because of Jesus. We have to do something with Jesus. Um, there, there have been a lot, there have been dozens, there have been hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who, who have walked on the stage and said, I'm God, follow me. I'll give you life, follow me. Plenty of charismatic leaders who have risen up and have rallied followers around them and led some kind of movement. But eventually, even, you know, after years of telling their followers, I'll give you life, they end up dead, the movement ends up dissolved. So what, what happened? What about this movement of Jesus? Jesus died too. We talked about that last week. He was hung on the cross. He was killed. There's a spear through his side. Jesus died too. What, what's so different about the movement of Jesus Christ that's, that's literally changed the world? 2,000 years later, we're singing about it. You know what the answer is? Easter. That's what happened. Easter. So listen, I, I don't, I'm not sure why you're all here today. I know many of us here are, are, are longtime members of the church here. We gather every single week and we celebrate what Jesus has done. We've been doing it for 16 years. Right? This, this church has been around for 16 years celebrating the work of Jesus Christ. But for some of you, maybe this is your first time here. I'm not sure what's brought you here. Um, but maybe, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here because somebody dragged you. But maybe you're here because you're ready to do some investigation. I don't know what your story is, but let me, let me actually challenge you with this. Maybe today is the day when you begin an honest, open-minded investigation into the claims of Jesus Christ and to what he has accomplished. Maybe today's the day when you begin that, that honest, open-minded investigation. You know, we, we've been reading through the Gospel of John together. In the passage we're about to read in John chapter 20, we, we find out the exact moment when John, the writer, becomes a Christian. It's really neat. We're, we're about to read it. The, the, the moment when, when John, it went, it went from just him hanging around Jesus and listening to his teachers and following and to the point where he actually places his faith in Jesus Christ. When, when Mary goes to the tomb on Sunday and she finds it empty, I'm, this is a spoiler alert, she goes and she finds, a, she finds the tomb empty. It's empty, everyone. Um, uh, and then she goes back, she's going to run and she's going to tell the disciples and Peter and John run to the tomb and they go inside the empty tomb and, and it says that, that Peter and John see the grave clothes that are, that, are, that are left there where Jesus had been laid. Remember Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodem Arimathea and Nicodemus, they take Jesus off the cross, they wrap him in grave clothes, his dead body, and they put him inside a, a tomb. 
On Sunday morning, when they go inside the tomb, they find the grave clothes still there. And what, what John says is that when he and Peter go in, that John sees and he believes. He saw and he believed. That word saw there in the Greek is theorio. It literally means, that's where we get our word theory. He theorizes. So it's not like he just sees, like the light bounces off and it hits his retina. He just sees, acknowledges there. He starts reasoning through because what he says in the text is that the grave clothes are still wrapped around as if there should be a body inside. The grave clothes come up to right here and then there's a little space for the head where the head's not wrapped up and then there's a little uh, head covering here. And so what, what, what the way it's written is that the grave clothes are still wrapped around and it's almost as if the body just kind of passed through it. Like it's a deflated balloon or something and laying there. And so John sees it and he says, if somebody would have taken Jesus' body, number one, they, they wouldn't have just taken his naked body. They wouldn't have desecrated the body. They would have unwrapped him. Or they, at least they would have ripped off. Why are the grave clothes still look like they should have a body and if this the body's not there? And then his mind must have raced back to all of those many, many, many times when Jesus said, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise again on the third day. You know, Jesus doesn't just predict his death. He predicts his resurrection as well on the third day. John's, John's mind must have raced back to all those times and he sees the grave clothes there and he starts reasoning through it, starts thinking through it. And then it says he believes. That's the moment. John looks at the evidence, he considers the claims of Jesus Christ, and then he places his faith once and for all in the work and the person of Jesus. Maybe today is the day when you see and believe. Maybe today is when, the day when you really, for the first time, honestly consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Consider the claims of what he has done, and look at the evidence, and then you place your faith in Jesus. I hope so. Enough chatting. Let's get to the text. John chapter 20. Let's read, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the first 18 verses. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and that's John talking about himself there, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed." For as yet they, had not they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
I, I came into this weekend with three big points I wanted to show you guys to, from that text. I've narrowed it down to one. I brought it down to one. Um, because I think just this one, one thing that we can state today, I think is going to be sufficient for the day. Um, uh, and it, we find it in, in the very first verse. We're not going to go through this, ex- we're not going to go verse by verse. You know, we did that last year, actually. If you want to hear this, this kind of broken down more in depth, go back and listen to the podcast last year. I'd encourage you to do that. We're just going to look really at the first verse of this today. Um, we see on Easter, through the resurrection, the darkness is turning to dawn. The darkness has turned to dawn. Go with me back to verse 1. I'll show you what I mean. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. In other words, Mary is approaching the tomb in darkness. I think what we've seen in, in the Gospel of John is John doesn't typically give us a whole lot of superfluous details. He's very careful about the way he words things and what, what he puts in there. I think John is trying to paint a picture for us. I don't think he's just telling us what the, what the environment was like in that moment. I think he's trying to paint a picture. John, John is telling us more than it's just dark outside. He's saying Mary is approaching the tomb in darkness. Darkness has been a big theme. It was the theme of, uh, of Josephat's video. This is a, it's a theme all throughout the scriptures, not just in John. Colossians says that, that we live in, apart from Jesus, we live in the domain of darkness. Uh, Romans says that because our hearts have not honored God, that, we, that our hearts have been darkened. Uh, Isaiah says that we have been walking in darkness, living in a land full of darkness. Okay, that's, it's a common theme throughout uh, the Bible, common metaphor throughout the scriptures. But what in the world does that even mean? What, is it, what does it mean that we live in darkness? Well, we'll think for a moment about what darkness is. Darkness isn't really a thing. Darkness is the absence of something, right? Darkness is the absence of light. So, so when the Bible says that, that we, we live in darkness, what it's simply saying is that because of our sin, we have been separated from God. We've been separated from the light of the glory of God. That's what it means to live in darkness. And, I, and instinctively, I, I, think that, I think we all know this to be the case. Regardless of whether or not you consider yourself religious or not, instinctively, I think somehow deep down inside, we all recognize this to be the case. We live in a land filled with darkness, a land that's broken, a land that's fractured, a land that's filled with sin. Um, that G.K. Chesterton once said that the Christian doctrine of sin is the one empirically verifiable doctrine, right? It, it's, the one, it's the one doctrine that can be scientifically proven. He said, all you got to do is open up the newspaper, right? He's right. And you just see it. It's just, we're, we're, we live in a land that's broken, a land that's fractured, a land that's living in darkness and sin. Um, I told you guys about a book I've been reading by uh, Luke Ferry. Luke Ferry is a French philosopher, and he is just wrote a book called A Brief Introduction of Thought. And in the very beginning of the book, he breaks down uh, kind of the fundamental goal of philosophy. He said, from throughout the ages, even though there's different branches of philosophy, different methods, different uh, you know, additional goals, he said there's one underlying foundational goal under it all. And he said it's to, it's to answer this one single question. And, and Luke Ferry's not a Christian, he says, there's this one single question that philosophy is trying to answer. How can I be saved? How can I be saved? Who's going to save us? And Luke Ferry just breaks down. He said, he said because you, know, you look at the world around us, and it's broken, and it's fractured, and it's falling apart, and it's filled with guilt, and it's filled with, with, with sin. He doesn't use the word sin. Filled with evil. And, and, and he says, after you live for 100 years in a broken world, then you die. It's a really upbeat book, I said. But, but that's, the, that's why he breaks it down. And, and, and you know, Luke Ferry's not a Christian, so he says, who's going to save us? What, who's going to, you know, send some light into our dark world? 
We all recognize that we need some light to penetrate the darkness that's around us and in our own hearts. And I, I said, uh, we said last Christmas that, that, that you know, we, we, all, we all recognize this. Again, Luke Ferry's a great example of this, but we all recognize this on some level. That's why, we're all, that's why we keep telling these same fairy tales over and over and over and over. That's why we keep you know, celebrating these same myths, these same legends. We keep telling generation after generation after generation these same stories that, that one day maybe some knight in shining armor will come and, and battle the dragon and will come and save us from the tall tower in that dark castle you know, and, and rescue us damsels in distress. That's why, we, that's why we keep telling these same stories because there's something in us that just resonates so deeply within us because we recognize that we're, we're in oppression, we're in darkness, we're in captivity, and we are desperate for some hero to come and save us. We're desperate for some prince to come and, and uh, you know, save us Cinderella's, right? And to come and claim us as his bride and to take us back to live in the palace. Claim us, claim us as his wife. We're, we're, we're absolutely, you know, desperate for some Flynn Rider. If, you're, if you've watched recent... Disney movie, for some Flynn Rider to come and lay down his life to, to bring us in, to be able to save us from the, the evil witch. We're, we're, some, we're, we're desperate for some beauty to come and see past our beastliness and come and kiss us and it changes from something beastly into something beautiful, something glorious. We're desperate for some Peter Pan to come and whisk us away to a land where we'll never grow old, right? As we talked about this last Christmas, one of the things that we said was, you know, the, the movie Lion King. Remember what the movie Lion King told us? That when the rightful king sits on the throne, that the land will live in peace and harmony and light. But when the rightful king is taken off that throne and, and the evil one comes and takes the throne. Remember, remember, remember how the animators animated Lion King when Scar takes the throne? Darkness. Pride Rock is just covered with darkness and desolation. There's no food. There's no joy. There's no hope. There's no light. I think instinctively we all recognize this. We live in a land filled with darkness. But you know what Lion King also tells us is that one day the son of the king is going to return and he's going to take back that throne. He's going to do battle against the evil one. He's going to take back that throne that rightfully belongs to him. And when he does, the rain is going to come and it's going to wash away the desolation and the sun is going to break through the clouds and the land will once again be filled with peace and harmony and light. We recognize it. Friends, Jesus is that hero. Jesus is that Savior. Jesus is that light, the light of the world that has come to dispel the darkness once and for all. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that, we looked at the darkness metaphor, but, but, but think for a second about what Jesus means when he says, I'm the light of the world. Let's think very concretely. What, what does that mean when Jesus says that he is the light of the world? Think about that metaphor. Think about light for a moment. Here's what we know about light. We know that light is the source of all life, right? Light is the source of life. So I think in the same way that the physical light is, is this, the physical light from the sun is the source of all biological life, Jesus is the source of our spiritual life. In the New Testament, Paul says that we are like God's field. What happens, we've got lots of gardeners in here, what happens when you plant a seed in a field and it remains in darkness? A whole lot of nothing, right? Nothing. Eventually, it just gets trampled on and washed away with the rain. But what happens when you expose that seed to the light of the sun? It bursts forth, right? It bursts forth in, in life and beauty and, and, and fruitfulness. And the potential that is locked up within that seed can burst forth. The potential for which it was created can burst forth in life and beauty and fruitfulness. I think the principle here is that if we want to experience life, if we want to experience the beauty that we were created for, if we want to experience the potential for what we were created for, we must, we must, we must come into the light of Jesus Christ. Light is the source of life. 
But light also brings truth. Light also brings truth. So I live out in the Evergreen area. I'm about, I'm about 10, 12 minutes up the hill over here, right off of Aborn. So let's say that after, the, um, after church today, I, uh, I decided to take the Silver Creek way, and so I drive up over this hill. What if... What if on my way, I'm, I'm driving up Silver Creek up that big hill, and I kind of make that turn. What if there's a deer right in the middle of that road? Okay? Um, there are a couple of ways that I can learn about, the, you know, the truth about the existence of that deer in, in, in my way. There's a couple of ways that I can discover that that deer exists there. I can, I can find the truth of, of, of the existence of that deer by hitting that deer, right? I, I, I can learn that it exists by hitting it. That's not the ideal way. Right? I would prefer to find another way. The only other way that I can learn about the truth of that existence of that deer is through light. The light bounces off of that deer. It hits the retinas. And then I'm able to determine you know, what's there and how big it is and what it's doing and where it's going. Light brings truth. Light brings knowledge about my environment. Light brings truth about the reality around me, the world around me. You follow me? When we experience the light of Christ, we are exposed to the truth about our world and about our future and the way we were created and the way in which we were designed to live. Light brings life, light brings truth, and light is also the source of our joy. We've talked here a couple times, I think, about Ernest Shackleton, who was, um, did a big expedition in Antarctica years ago. Um, and he was stranded on that expedition in the South Pole. And, and he said... Uh, out of all the difficulties that he faced as he was stranded there, including starvation, including the freezing temperatures, by far the most difficult thing that he faced was the darkness. In the South Pole, from mid-May to July, the sun goes down, doesn't come back up. And, and, and so you, there's, this, there's this darkness that you, that you or I probably have never, ever, ever experienced. Just this utter pitch black. And he said, it's enough to make a man go mad. Enough to make a man go mad. Uh, he said, you know, you, you, can't, you don't know which way is forward. You don't know which way is back. Basically, you lose all sense of direction. He, he says, you don't know what's two feet from you. you. You have no sense of security at all because you can't see anything. You, you, he says, you even begin to forget what you look like. You, it almost feels like you begin losing your very you know, sense of identity. He says, it's absolutely maddening. He said, what I needed more than food, what I needed more than a good jacket was just a little bit of light. Light is the source of comfort. Light is, light is the source of identity. Light is the source of our security. Light is the source of our joy. But there's one more thing that, that I think Jesus is saying when he says that he's the light of the world. I think he's saying that he's bringing us peace. I know that's what he's saying. And he's not just bringing us peace in, in, a, in a vague sense, in an ambiguous sense, in a general sense. Jesus brings us peace with God. Again, we said that darkness simply means the absence of light. It's the state that we live in when we are separated from the light of the glory of God. Friends, Jesus has come to dispel that darkness, to, be, to take away that separation from God. He, he has made a way for you and I to enter back into the light of the glory of God, which is what we were created for. And you know how he did it? He took our darkness. He took our separation. He, he, he took the the. the, the penalty, the punishment that, that we deserved for our sins. He took the justice into his heart. He took the darkness. I don't think it's any coincidence that when Jesus was betrayed by his friend in the garden, it was under the cover of darkness. It was in the middle of the night. I don't think there's any coincidence that when Jesus was standing there on an, in an illegal trial, that he was standing under, under the cover of darkness. I don't think it's any coincidence that when Jesus was hanging on that cross from noon to 3 p.m., three hours, that we're told that the sun goes dark. The sun goes black for three hours. 
Jesus took our darkness. He was forsaken by God on our behalf. And can you just imagine being John? John was there when it happened. John was watching. He was at the foot of the cross. He was there when the sun went dark. Can you imagine being John and the others who were there just in this moment of of deepest despair, deepest darkness, feeling like all hope is lost, everything falling apart around them. But in the midst of that darkness, do you remember what Jesus said? We talked about it last week. Do you remember with Jesus' last dying breaths, we're told in the other Gospels that he actually cried this out. We know he's, he's dying from dehydration, so he couldn't yell. But with basically with everything he could muster, he cries this out. That the three most significant, beautiful, powerful words ever uttered in the history of mankind, he yells out, it is finished. It's finished, he says. In, in, in the Greek, that, that's actually just one word. It's tetelestai, he says. Tetelestai. Literally, it means, in the Greek, it means, I've done it, and I've done it completely. In that day, when you had a bill, an outstanding debt that had to be paid, when you finished paying off every last penny of that debt, they'd stamp it and they'd say, Tetelestai, paid in full. The debt's gone. And that's what Jesus Christ cried out on the cross. It's done. You know what he's saying? There is an infinite chasm that separates humanity from God. And Jesus, when he cries out, Tetelestai, it's done. It's been paid. He's saying, I've crossed over every last inch of that separation. On your behalf, there is an infinite debt that must be paid because of your sin. I have paid every last penny to Telestai. That's the good news of the gospel. And here's the question, for, especially for a cynic uh, like me. How do you know? Just because a guy cries it out on the cross, how do we know? How do we know it's done? You know the answer? Easter. Easter. The resurrection tells us that it's done. It's, it's like a criminal who has been sentenced to jail for a crime. When that sentence has been paid, when it's been completed, the man walks out free. The law no longer has any claim over him. He's done his time. Jesus took our penalty and he paid it in full. The, the law no longer has any claim over him, so he walked out free. The wages of our sin is death. Jesus took those wages upon himself and he's no longer dead. That's how we know he's alive. You know, something I learned this week as I was studying, studying through this, something I, it had never occurred to me, the significance of this. I'm still, I, I'm just going to warn you, I'm still wrapping my head around it, so I, I can't really kind of wrap this in a neat little bow here. Did you know that I don't think the Bible teaches that Jesus raised himself from the dead? I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, that Jesus raised himself from the dead. I think what the Bible teaches is that the Father raised Jesus The Father, through the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. Can I tell you why that's so incredibly significant? Because if Jesus just raised himself from the dead, that that he could have been like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. You know, I'm I'm tired of being forsaken by God. I'm tired of taking this, you know, penalty on me. I'm I'm done. I'm on out. He could have he could have said that. That's like the that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that the Father, through the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So the difference is this. That's like a criminal going to jail for a, for a crime and a couple days later being like, I think I'm done. I'm done with jail. I think I want out now. It's the difference between that and the judge saying, your sentence has been paid. You're a free man. You're free to go. You see the difference? The Father, through the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. That's what the Bible teaches. 
Therefore, we can be confident. The resurrection tells us that every last sin has been paid for. Everything that you or I have done in the past, everything we will do in the future, it's all done. We, we've said before, I, I think this is the, the, uh, the, the resurrection, it's, it's a lot of things. But, but, but one thing that is, it's kind of like a receipt. It's kind of like a receipt. So if you, if you ran over to Safeway across the street after church today to go grab a couple of last items for your Easter party this afternoon... Um, and as you're walking out with your family, the security guard comes and tackles you outside the door and, and, and says, you know, basically accuses you of, of stealing the stuff in your bag. You know, what do you do? You reach in your pocket and you take out the receipt and you say, no, 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 look. Paid in full. Paid in full. That's sort of what the resurrection does. When, when Satan accuses you again, and he will. When Satan accuses you of your sin and says, there's no way that God could forgive you this time. You've gone too far this time. One too many times. You've done this one too. How could God forgive you ever again? And and when when he's condemning you, you know what you do? You whip out that receipt and you you point to the resurrection. You say, no, 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 paid in full. Paid in full. That's the best news in all the world. Friends, Mary comes to the tomb in the dark, but, but the sun is rising. Literally, the sun is rising. Jesus has risen. Amen? The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's the good news of the gospel. I want to say just one more thing before I close. Um, there's, there's some danger here with, with Easter. It, it, sometimes we can approach Easter in kind of an abstract way, kind of a, at, at an arm's length, um, as if we're just celebrating something that happened in the past that re- really is going to make a big difference in the future, right? It's something from the, that we're celebrating that happened 2,000 years ago that's going to really affect us 50 years from now. But what about today? How does it affect me today? Let, go with me again to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I gotta, I'm, I'm going to take a quick side note real fast. Notice the way that he said that. He said, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus already now is even changing his verbiage. He's changing the way that he's speaking. He's not just saying, I'm going to my Father and my God. He says, I'm going to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Everything has changed because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can now experience the very same relationship that, God, that Jesus has with the Father, that, that level of intimacy and affections and, and unity with the Father because of what Jesus Christ has done. So now it's my Father and your Father, my God and your God. You see that? I think that's so significant. And the other thing, um, I'm sorry, rabbit trails here. Look at the way he refers to his disciples. Does he say, go to those punks who betrayed me and you tell them, Go to those deserters. I saw Peter. I, saw, I, I made eye contact with him when he denied me that third time, when he was calling curses down upon me in my moment of darkest hour. You tell them that they better come back and they, they crawl, you know, and they, they better beg my forgiveness. No, what does he say? Go to my brothers and you tell them, I'm going to my father and your father, their father, my God and their God. Go to my brothers. So listen, 
if you're here and we're talking about these great things about God, you know, having a relationship with us and loving us enough to die for us, maybe you're thinking, well, that's cool for you guys, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my past. You don't know my present. You don't know the things I'm still wrapped up in. It can't be for me. Number one, if you're thinking that, if that's still what's going through your brain, you're not listening. You're not listening. You're not paying attention. Pay attention. The, the resurrection says that every sin has been paid for. Everyone. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world and he's risen, which means he did it. It's finished. To tell us, I listen up. That means your sin too. And it means mine. It's hard to believe, I know. But, but secondly, if you just need another example, look at this. He says, go to my brothers. Jesus has made a way for you to be a brother and it's a, to be a child of the living God. Sorry, that was a total rabbit trail here. How does the resurrection, how does Easter affect us today? Um, so when Mary, when Mary learns that it's Jesus, when her eyes are open, when Jesus says her name, it seems as if Mary runs to Jesus and she embraces him. She hugs him because Jesus says, Mary, don't cling to me. You don't say don't cling to me if somebody's not clinging to you, right? Um, so he, he, he says, Mary, don't, don't cling. It seems like he kind of has to pry her off of him in a sense, like they've hugged and now she kind of just won't let go. Um, and, 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 and then Jesus says, Mary, don't cling to me for I have not, you know, I have, yet, I have to ascend to the Father. You, you know what he's saying there? Uh, throughout his ministry, Jesus has said, when I ascend to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to come and live in your heart. So you know what I think is, is going through Mary's mind? I think Jesus realizes this. He's saying, you know, Mary, Mary's grabbed a hold of him and she won't let go of him. And because and, and, and I, I think she's basically thinking, I, I'm never going to let you go again. I'm never going to leave your side. I'm always going to be right here. I'm always going to be holding on to you, clutching you, touching you. I'm never going to let you go this time. And Jesus, I think, basically is looking and saying, Mary, don't cling to me. You, always, you want me in your arms forever. I'll do you better than that. I'll be in the very center of your being. I'm going to come in right into the very thing. I'm going to come right into your heart. I'm not going to transform you from the outside in. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to give you a new root, a new foundation. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. There'll be nowhere where you can go where I won't be there with you. I'll be with you day in and day out. Because of Easter, Romans 8 says that the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in me and now lives in you if we place our faith in Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you and me if we place our faith in Jesus. Now, let me just ask you one simple question as we close. What would it look like if you actually believed that? What would your life look like if you day in and day out actually believed that the same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you and goes where you go? Never leaves you, never forsakes you. What would your life look like? How would you approach maybe that, that, that struggle in your life, that sin in your life that seems like it's just too big, it's... it's, it's you just can't beat it. You don't have the power. You can't overcome it. And, you, you know, I, I just can't stop looking at that stuff on the computer. I just can't do it. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. There's just, I just can't beat it. How would you approach that if you knew that the same spirit of Christ that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you? That's the power that you fight that sin with. It's not your own power. How would you approach your marriage relationship? I, I, I don't know the, the ins and outs of your, each of your marriages. There might be somebody here who's basically at the end of their rope saying, I, I don't know if I have what it takes to make it through another week, another month. 
in this marriage. I, I don't know. I know God says that he hates divorce, but I just don't know if, if, I can, if, I can, if I can have the patience and the steadfastness and the faithfulness and the love and the forgiveness to make it through one more week with this person. I don't think it's going to survive. How would you approach that marriage if, if you believed that the spirit of Christ, the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now lives in you? Can I, can I tell you this very quickly as we close? Um, it's the third time I've said that. Um, <laughs> can I tell you what that looks like in my life, what that's looked like? Let me tell you what resurrection power has looked like in my life. It looks like me taking my two-year-old daughter out on Thursday night on our first little date, okay? And let me, let me explain. Because five or six years ago, my marriage with Jessica was dead. It, it was done. Um, we had walked through some incredibly dark days, and I thought there was nothing left in us that, to survive. I thought we were over. But the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in me and lives in my wife because we were followers of Jesus. In the same way that, that, in the same way that God... That God raised Jesus from the dead. He raised my marriage from the dead. Because, because Jessica, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, had, had experienced forgiveness and, 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 and grace and mercy, she was able to show, by the power of the Spirit, forgiveness and grace and mercy. Because she had experienced and had been transformed by the gospel of grace, she was able to forgive me for the mistakes that I had made in my marriage. Because she and I both had experienced the patience and the steadfastness and the faithfulness and the love of God, we were able to, to, to show one another by the power of the Spirit living inside of us patience and steadfastness and faithfulness and love during those really, really difficult days of rebuilding our marriage. In the same way that God raised Jesus from the dead, he resurrected my marriage. And what occurred to me on Thursday night, and I've been thinking about a lot of, you know, the resurrection and the significance of it. And so I'm sitting there Thursday night with my little girl, and I was looking at her, and I was thinking, if, if God hadn't poured out his spirit and enabled us to make it through this and, and to make something that was dead come to life, and that's really what it is, my marriage is alive with Jessica today. If, if I didn't have that, not only would I not have the marriage that I have today, I might not have had a marriage, period. And if I didn't have that marriage, period, my beautiful little girl sitting across from me wouldn't be here today. Do you know, my daughter's name, for those of you who haven't met her, my daughter's name is Gwendolyn Renee. Do you know what Gwendolyn Renee means? We didn't actually know this when we named her this. Gwendolyn Renee means blessed ring reborn. Blessed ring reborn. That, that sums it up. That's the resurrection power in my life. It matters absolutely today. Easter changes everything. That's, that's how God's work is resurrection power in my life. But what about you? What's dead in your life that needs to come to life? What, what, what is you know, remaining in darkness? Where, where does the light of Christ need to shine? Maybe it's your very heart. Maybe it's your heart that's dead that needs to come to life. Maybe today, maybe you recognize, okay, I am separated from him. I am living in sin. I am walking in darkness. Maybe today is the day when once and for all, finally, you admit your need for a Savior and you put, place your faith in Jesus. Look what he's done for you. He has died on the cross to make a way for you to come back and to live, within, live in that which you were created for. Live in the light of the glory of God. Have a relationship with God.
I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're, we're going to sing one more song. We're going to celebrate what Jesus has done. But as they're coming up, what I do, I want to do, I want to pray right now. I want to just ask every head to, to bow and every eye to close. What I'd like to do is I'd like to pray. And maybe God is stirring up in your heart and he is, uh, he is wooing you to him. He is drawing you to him. He is open, maybe opening your eyes and saying, yes, I do need him. I do want to receive what he has done. I want to receive that forgiveness that he is offering me. Friends, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. In other words, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that God accomplished through Jesus what he, the scriptures tell us, and you, and you receive that into your life, you will be saved. Forgiveness can be had today. He can wash you clean. You can walk, walk out of this room in just a few minutes um, free for the first time, washed clean, guiltless, without shame, accepted completely by God, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. All you got to do is tell him. You just simply say, say this. You just confess your need of him. Say, God, I, I know I need you. I want you to forgive me for my sins. I believe that you are the son of God and that you died on the cross to take the justice for my sins and that you rose again, defeating death. And that through you, I too can have new life. Help me to live for you from this day forward. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior, as my King and as my Savior. Here is my life. For just a couple of minutes, we're just going to let it kind of go silent here. I'm going to just give you an opportunity in your own words. The Bible doesn't give us any magic words to use. God knows your heart. If you want to, if you want to tell that to the Lord, I'm going to just give you some space right now to say that.